Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 10th of September 2021. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, Australians left devastated by Frydenberg's double standard. We're going to talk about uh, how Josh Frydenberg treats big business as opposed to ordinary Australians, a double standard that can't be left to stand. And secondly, the real story of 9-11, where we're going to review exactly the turning point for the world that 9-11 represented in terms of the drive for war, police states and the sabotage of the sort of cooperation we desperately need in the world today. Now, if you like the show, don't forget to hit the like button, subscribe and hit the notification bell so that you're alerted to new shows and share this as widely as you can. So firstly, Australians left devastated by Frydenberg's double standard. Now, we've just issued uh, in the last half hour or so a media release titled Frydenberg's 13 billion would compensate all financial victims. This is completely outrageous, uh, Elisa. There's pressure building on it, but I can't believe how much the Treasurer of Australia is doubling down on his insistence that the $13 billion that was overpaid in JobKeeper. Now, it's, it's not a problem that it was paid at first, right, because they structured JobKeeper in a certain way, but there's $13 billion that went to businesses who increased their profits during lockdowns, right? So they didn't qualify, and they did nothing to do that, to structure the, the program so that they could get the money back, and Josh Frydenberg has no intention of getting the money back, and he's doubling down on justifying why. Um, and of course, there's huge double standards here. One is the double standard that everyone knows about compared to the way the government treats people who are overpaid welfare payments, mm. right? And robo-debt, that, that whole scandal, because they literally pursued them to the grave. The other one, though, is what we wanted to raise, which is that, and this is what the press release is about, there, there were 10,000 people made submissions to the Banking Royal Commission in 2018 because they were victims of financial misconduct, 10,000. 27 of them got to take the stand. Most of those people have never been compensated or they've been barely compensated, right? And there's a lot more victims than that. Um, the government's come up with this thing called the Compensation Scheme of Last Resort, and it's too small. It's too narrow. The 13... Josh Frydenberg is, is, is showing this government doesn't care about $13 billion, right? That $13 billion, which those businesses by definition don't need, would compensate all financial victims in Australia. That's what we're talking about here. So we've got, because if we've been paying a lot of attention to this issue in recent times, and if you're a victim of a, of a bank or financial misconduct, you're often left completely devastated and impoverished, right? And what happens is there'll often be, the, the court cases that do work or the, process, or the ASIC enforcement that does work, They'll, they'll convict a businessman or, they'll, or, or a director or whatever. They, they'll ban people from being directors of companies, but there's never any actual compensation for the victims, right? They're left ruined. Oh, so that's, that's like, that's the cost of doing business. This shows the government could fix this. And this week, uh, Elisa, there was a protest rally in Perth by the victims of a special example of a financial crime, which is the victims of Sterling First. And one of the reasons we keep singling it out is 
Um, there's 140 people here who are elderly. They got ripped off by a scam, an absolute scam, but they can't start again. They will be thrown out on their ear unless this same treasurer ponies up $18 million, a tiny fraction, to pay these, to compensate these victims so they're not thrown out in the street. It's a no-brainer. Do it, Mr. Frydenberg. Just do it, right? Snap your fingers and do it. If you're gonna, if you are gonna let these businesses keep thirteen billion dollars, but not do anything for these victims, you are a, you know, what? I don't want to go overboard here, but what words can describe what sort of human being you are, right? So, let's play a clip, um, Elisa. This protest was a, was actually quite good. The the victims are very fired up, and we've got involved with them, which is um, uh, helping to get more publicity, etc. Uh, the clip is, we just want to play a clip of Denise Braley. Now, Denise Braley is the founder of the Banking and Finance Consumer Support Association. And this woman should be the head of ASIC, right? She should be the chair of ASIC. Absolutely. She has fought for financial victims for 20 years. She's not a financial victim of Sterling First. She got involved to show them how to fight back against these bastards. So she's addressing the rally, and we'll just play a little clip of that. So more and more people were signed up. It was heavily endorsed on radio, newspapers, in WA. It's not about WA. There are four states infected with this scam. It only lasted two years before ASIC started to even look at this thing. And then when it seriously started to inquire, it actually didn't do anything other than chat to a few consumer protection people who just said, well, we fix the leases, you fix the financial product. That's a disgrace. The, the ASIC insists you are investors. Are you investors? No! And the good thing, Lisa, um, you see what you see. It was pretty lively there. Um, uh, Choice Magazine has covered this now. Six PR in Perth, which is their big radio station equivalent of you know three AW in Melbourne or two GB in Sydney. Um, they were there. Seven thirty report from the ABC was there. So hopefully there'll be a report on that, on that coming soon. And the West Australian newspaper covered it. Right, so that's really good. Now, there's another development, Robbie, that shows that the Frydenberg and his government are not serious about financial regulation. Well, you know the saying, um, fox in charge of the hen house, Dracula in charge of the blood bank, and there's lots of examples of that. You know, there's never worse than in financial regulation. So what's happened is um, the government recently set up this... One of the things that, to, coming out of the Royal Commission, the government has pretended, oh, we are going to clean up the financial system. So they're doing these token things. The compensation scheme of last resort is one of those token things. They've set it up, but they've made it so narrow, it's not going to help people like the Sterling First victims. And we have to change that. We'll do more on that in, in, in future weeks. But they've set up this other thing to police the police kind of idea, right, called the Financial Regulator Assessment Authority. And they've set up this authority to look... To, that's supposed to be a group that oversees all financial regulation in Australia and makes sure the different regulators, ASIC, which is the corporate regulator, APRA, which is the bank regulator, ACCC, etc., they're doing their job properly. Who have they put in charge of this? This is a name that people in the industry would know, but the average Australian wouldn't know. His name's Nicholas Moore. You would be more familiar with what he was, the bank he was the director of, the boss of for a long time. 
Macquarie Bank. And Macquarie Bank's called the Millionaire's Factory, Elisa. They perfected the art of looting an economy. That's why they're the Millionaire's Factory. They do it in a million different ways. Worse than that, they are also the, they, they are that organized, that bank, and this man, Nicholas Moore, for 30 years has been involved in funding and participating in these think tanks that were set up called the Tasman Institute, Center for Independent Studies, etc., like the IPA, the right-wing think tanks that um, drove a battering ram through financial regulation in Australia. These are the people who destroyed the whole idea that you should regulate the financial system, right? Because they, they, they preached, oh no, you shouldn't regulate anything, and gave us this paradise for white-collar criminals mm. that we have, right? These people did it. And this man, who was on the board of the Tasman Institute, which was one of those think tanks, gave money to the Centre for Independent Studies, etc. He's now supposed to oversee how financial regulators perform in Australia. It is beyond a joke. Mm -hmm. This is a government, what, as we say it in the press release, uh, Elisa, the reason Josh Frydenberg won't click his fingers and pony up $18 million, because you cannot compensate the victims of Sterling First for ASIC's failings without overhauling ASIC. How could you say, oh, yeah, okay, we see ASIC fail in there, we'll pay you the money. Well, then everyone will say, well, what are you going to do about ASIC? You would have to overhaul ASIC. And that means ASIC would stop being a weak and ineffective regulator. And that's what the banks and the government don't want. And so to keep ASIC weak and ineffective, they're just going to ignore those victims and let them drown. And this isn't this Nicholas Small thing is another example. We'll, we'll have more on that in, in the future, but it just shows it's yeah. a joke. So the fight we're in that we need people to participate in is really, really serious um, because we cannot let them get away with it. We, we're exposing the various things they're doing. But we can win this fight to get compensation for these victims and get an inquiry that lays all this bare. Yep, and that, that's a stunning marker, actually, of the deregulation task force that the government brought into being at the uh, well middle of 2020. And then by the end of 2020, it was taking scalps, yep. including Chris, Christine Holgate, because she was pushing through Australia Post to set up a People's Postal Bank, which would have regulated the banks indirectly. And people like um, the, head of, the head the chairman of, of ASIC. ASIC, James Shipton. There was one chairman in this period who tried to do something and he with was With his deputy, Daniel Crennan. So this began this kind of new momentum just when you thought we couldn't have any more deregulation and make matters even worse. Um, that's what, exactly what we're getting. So yep. we'll continue to fight it whenever it pops its head up and this is a, a great opportunity to smash that agenda again. One little plug, next week, middle of next week, we're going to put up a video, an interview I've done with a bank victim named Wayne Ditchburn. Look out for it. It'll be put up on YouTube middle of next week. It's a bombshell. You want to see what, you know, why we take on these issues, right? Mm. This is when, when the thousands of people that have been destroyed by the financial system, you cannot sweep it under the carpet. Now we'll move on to our next topic, the real story of 9-11. And we want to give a bit of a, a sweep here of <coughs> some of the history that 9-11 um, marks a midpoint of, in a sense, of the genesis of terrorism, starting in particularly from the 1970s onward, and then how the world changed after that point, what the import of that action was. And, Lisa, before you begin, the real story uh, is actually giving this kind of depth. Uh, the real story is not how the towers came down, etc. That's still not even, you know, there's, 
there's lots of work still to be done on that. I don't think you'd ever get to the bottom of that in, in actual detail until you have a proper government that, that honestly looks at it. Mm. But I did want to say, because, you know, we have a range of, we have viewers that would have a, you know, range of ages, etc. But for us, we were there in a sense, like most of the whole world was. Um, and just disclose for the public, uh, uh, in case they don't know, we're married. <laughs> we're not brother and sister, as some people wonder. Um, and so we can remember the night we're sitting at home just before ready, getting ready for bed and suddenly Sandra Sully breaks into whatever we're watching on TV with breaking news that a plane has flown into the, into the World Trade Centre. Right? And at first we thought, you know, an accident, then we watched the second one happen live. And I'm, right, I'm saying that because everybody remembers that day. Probably, it's probably the most vivid experience in our history. Maybe the death of Princess Diana sort of uh, competes with that, but no, no, we're in that same league. The world changed that day. Mm. Our, the history of our time is divided into pre-9-11 and post-9-11, right? But the, pe- the people who like using this term pre-9-11 wanted us to ignore what really led up to 9-11 mm. so they could get away with what they did after. And that's what we want to go yeah. through today. Um, and we've talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We introduced uh, the idea that in 1979 uh, you had the um, US administration under advice of people like Zbigniew Brzezinski uh, who decided that they had to go into Afghanistan um, to support local terrorist groups and which actually built them up into significant terrorist groups such as the Mujahideen locally, but then more broadly, which became ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Uh, and they literally, this was to support um, the Soviet... Elisa, uh, this, was a sh- this was a strategy that by the United States and the United Kingdom to uh, whip up extremists against the Soviets, right? And it's actually, there's a, there was a... Um, uh, we've documented this a lot. There was a British Orientalist uh, named Bernard Lewis. This was called the Ark of Crisis. He said, you know, the underbelly of Russia and China are these um, uh, Central Asian republics, etc., that have a lot of Muslims in them. Let's stir them up. Mm. Let's create extremism against against so against that target. Um, and of course, now just you know, it's a ridiculous thing. Everyone is crying about the way the women of Afghanistan have been left abandoned. You can see the photos of what women of Afghanistan the freedoms they enjoyed back in the 1970s before we stirred up these extremists against them, right? They, um, it's all rubbish. And recently we watched the movie, the James Bond movie, um, The Living Daylights. And in The Living Daylights, the goodies are the Mujahideen, right, that became Al-Qaeda. Um, Rambo Three was another one in the 1980s. The goodies are the Mujahideen and Al- what, what became Al-Qaeda. And, you know... There's a, there's a direct connection from there to what ended up happening. In a similar way to, you know, when we made a big song and dance over the fact that the US were supporting Al-Qaeda-linked allies in, um, in Syria. Yeah, You know, against and Libya. the elected president. Uh, exactly. So this happens all the time. But this is going back to where it was originating. And so the US had gone in. Uh, to Afghanistan, and they were literally freeing terrorists from, um, you know, from prison throughout the Middle East. Saudi Arabia was doing the same thing and sending people to fight in Afghanistan. One of them was Osama bin Laden. Um, but where was the money coming from for this? A British deal created the slush fund 
that allowed this to happen, that fostered and funded the support for this Mujahideen movement, which later became ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Um, now, this deal was established in 1985. It was known as the Al-Yamama Oil for Arms Deal. The deal was between uh, BAE Systems, a British military arms company, and Saudi Arabia. British BAE used to be British Aerospace, a public a government company, and it was since privatised. Now it's BAE Systems. It's all over the world. This is the single... We know there's lots of... You know, the biggest arms companies in the world are American. This is the single biggest arms deal in history. And Margaret Thatcher did the deal. So this was government down... Um, using BAE, using Saudi Arabia to begin channeling money um, between this deal, which was oil for arms. So the amount that they were getting paid for oil was um, being super inflated and being channeled in as extra funds into these uh, terrorist outfits. Um, now, in essence, this was really the British, in that sense, sending the US in to fight Russia. Um, yeah. <laughs> But 9-11 was a turning point because that's when the US was hit with the same terrorist apparatus and thereafter Russia was hit indirectly because allies of Russia in you know, places like Syria and Libya and so forth started to be targeted in regime change wars and the terrorism yep. apparatus began to spread through the Chechens, through other apparatus to actually really hit Russia hard in that way. Um, and now today you see it being uh, levelled against the same kind of thing, being the same mechanisms, the same apparatus being levelled against China. Um, now, on the Saudi role, though, in 9-11, we want to talk about this a little bit more uh, because in the US there's been a big campaign to release some of the documents known as the 28 Pages, which was the result of a joint congressional inquiry into 9-11, but when it was originally released after the inquiry was completed, 28 pages were completely redacted. So they were just black, those full 28 pages. And our organisation played a role at that time in revealing and leading, you know, participating in that campaign to get them released, as did many other organisations. People who watch on YouTube could go back to 2016 and 2015 in, on this channel, right, and look at those reports we did at the time. We, we were jumping up and down about the 28 pages almost every week, and it worked. We finally got them released. And, and, um, and since then, there's a lot of other documents that the 9-11 families who are waging a, uh, a lawsuit against the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, so they're taking on the big guns in this, but they needed a lot more evidence, FBI evidence, affidavits and all kinds of things, in order to get that court case to gain the traction it needed, uh, which... Biden, President Biden has just agreed to release. So there's going to be a lot of detail coming out of this. And just to give you a flavour of the kind of evidence we're talking about, um, you had two Saudi intelligence agents. Omar al-Bayoumi was one of them. He provided two hijackers in California with housing, money, driver's licences and other logistical support when they arrived in the US. Fayyad al-Thumari was a diplomat at the Saudi consulate in Los Angeles who met uh, with the hijackers. You had also the roles of FBI informants, like one FBI informant who rented rooms to the hijackers. You had another Saudi intelligence officer in Washington, D.C., Musaid al-Jarrah, who coordinated the activities of al-Bayoumi and al-Thumari, the other two agents, 
and other Saudi agents in supporting the hijackers. And this, what you're about to say, is the smoking gun bombshell, mixed metaphors I know, but this is what was in these 28 pages. You've yeah. just, everything you've just said is from the 28 pages and this next one is the big one. Um, those Saudi agents were all paid by Saudi Prince Bandar bin Sultan from his US bank account at Riggs Bank and the money in that bank account was transferred from a Bank of England account that held BAE money, money from the slush fund, which paid El ba uh, who paid Bandar bin Sultan kickbacks yep. for having negotiated the deal. So the kickbacks from this slush fund that funded all the terrorism in Afghanistan that created and boosted the Mujahideen uh, you know, was that same funds, the same money being used to pay the agents who ran these hijackers. Elisa, well, in the Michael Moore documentary, Fahrenheit 9-11, he highlighted how, which probably well known to a number of people, um, the Osama, the Bin Laden family were allowed to leave the United States when when flights were embargoed after the after the uh, the attacks, right, um, etc. The story, and, and that was that was suspicious enough, right? He, he highlights the Carlisle group and the connection to the Bushes. This here, this name here, was the big one because this guy, Prince Bandar bin Sultan, was so close to George W. Bush yeah. and the Bush family. He was known as Bandar Bush. Yeah. He was a close personal friend of Prince Charles, who at a certain point took over the negotiation because the El Yamama is an ongoing arms deal and it's regularly renegotiated, etc. And for a long time, Prince Charles has been the UK's lead negotiator in that deal, mm. right? But it was Bandar who first struck the deal back then. Who's also a friend of Charles. His, his biographer, John Simpson, admits that, that he's the guy in, his, in the biography about Bandar who admitted that the sludge fund was used to fund Al-Qaeda, mm. right? And then we, we knew that they were hiding something in these 28 pages and that's what came out. Mm. And so, and I want to make, before we go, <laughs> one point, in those months, in that, say, 12 months after 9-11, while this inquiry was being um, conducted and they were, they were finding evidence on this guy and putting it in this report, he was part of the campaign to turn the 9-11 attack into the completely unrelated war on Iraq, right? If you really got, everyone knew that whatever it was, 16 of the 19 hijackers were Saudis, everyone knew that. If you were really going to um, exact revenge for the 9-11 attack, you would have invaded Saudi Arabia. Instead, they did the thing in Afghanistan that we only just recently finished and invaded Iraq. And he was part of the campaign to make that happen. And those countries, um, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya and Syria, that represented the beginnings of the war on terror, had already been identified by the United yeah. States as... The agenda was pre-existing, you're right. Yeah, and uh, that was part of the... Um, Wolfowitz Doctrine, um, which was Paul Wolfowitz who worked with Dick Cheney uh, in order to um, suppress uh, nations like Russia and China that could become major competitors or threats to the United States. And at least Paul Wolfowitz, there's a, there's, a, there's a handful of people, at least maybe two handfuls of people that should be in jail in America over 9-11, over the Iraq war especially, right? Paul Wolfowitz is one of them. Where is he? Well, last night he was the lead guest on ABC's 7.30 report. And Lee Sales asked him one slightly tough question about it, but otherwise he's completely rehabilitated, right? He's the expert who gets to comment 
on the 20-year Afghanistan war rather than be rotting in a, in a cell where he belongs because they cooked up a conspiracy based on lies to kill a million people in Iraq as part of their plan to rewrite the map of the Middle East. Now, this same party that smashed Afghanistan um, back there in the 1970s who built up this terrorist apparatus, who launched these war regime change wars, is now using the same kind of divide-and-conquer operations to pitch nations one against the other and uh, the push is for world war, potentially, by targeting Russia and China directly and saying these are our enemies and there's been a number of um, new US and UK security doctrines implemented in the last few years to say these are our great power competitors and we have to take aim against China and Russia and isolate them and so forth. And they are the same people. That's the point. So, because see, what happened was in those in that first decade or so after 9/11, the whole world acknowledged that terrorism was a problem. So the Chinese and the Russians. They didn't make the mistake we did enough. They didn't go to Iraq and Syria and whatever, but they knew terrorism was a problem, right? And so George Bush appreciated Putin's help and all this kind of stuff um, in, in the war on terror. But that was only ever a ploy to this Wolfowitz doctrine of we, the United States, must always be the sole superpower. That's the Wolfowitz doctrine. So they were always looking at targeting those countries, Russia and China, and they... And they 20 years, less than 20 years later, um, by 2015 or 2016, they'd started turning their their um, animosity. They said, "Oh, terrorism's not the number one threat anymore. It's the right. It's Russia mm -hmm. and China, right?" But it's the same people, the same. But we know they lied in Iraq. We know they did. Mm. They, we know they should be in jail. It's the very same people, and that's one of the reasons we've been very forceful in speaking out against the war agenda. Yeah, that divisiveness is not what the world reads, needs right now. And now I want to move into the other part, the other element of the post 9-11 era, which is national security laws, anti-terrorism laws, uh, the whole sweeping fascist agenda that as the financial system is collapsing, there needs to be another means of control brought in. And I want to uh, do this by uh, referring back to various publications that we've put out yeah. since 2001 um, because, you know, we have a weekly magazine and, you know, people can contact us to get a sample copy of that. You can subscribe to that. But we produce it every week and I've chosen a selection of some articles and press releases and other pamphlets and magazines that we put out to illustrate what I'm about to go through. But when you're writing every week for a publication, the amount of articles that we've written on this subject was absolutely overwhelming. And this is crucial, uh, Elisa, because... Uh, last week, a bill passed the parliament that Labor Party waved through, surveillance and disruption bill or, or whatever it's called. We're gonna, we, we will write it up. And a lot of people have been really shocked by it. Uh, the way it so quickly went through parliament, etc. it means that a ASIO and AFP can get into your computer and change things and, and uh, whatever. We weren't shocked by it because we're, for 20 years yeah. we have been fighting these series of bills and, in fact, there's been more than 75. Well, there was at the point in 2019 when US, UNSW constitutional law expert George Williams reviewed the new legislation since 2001. There were 75 new then. security laws. <laughs> okay. So there's probably another five, ten, five or ten by now. I'd sure. say ten plus since then. I mean, it takes a bit of work to actually find them all and pull them all together. But we've written about every single one of them yep. over these, this last period. 
Um, and it started with the Defence Legislation Amendment, Aid to Civilian Authorities Act, John Howard's September 2000 infamous shoot to kill bill. And that's 2000. That's a year before 20, two, seven, two, September 2000, a year before 9-11. They were gearing up these kind of powers then. And that mm. was a particular power that allows the feds to deploy the army into a state with power to use deadly force. Now, on 12 June 2002, we put a full-page advertisement in The Australian, End Them, Don't Amend Them. We'll put that up on the screen. That was signed by hundreds of people across the nation that we were working with. And we fought this tooth and nail. This, we focused on nothing but we had for a, months. We had a, uh, a, a phone bank in this office where, where we are now. We had, it was manned by dozens of people. We were calling people all around Australia to get them to call. So this is when we first got involved in really targeting members of parliament, right? We, we flooded them with calls. We actually forced a shift. It was quite extraordinary. Under Simon Crean, um, in that first year after 9-11, thanks to our organising, the Labor Party actually didn't wave through these anti-terrorism laws under Simon Crean. And also under Simon Crean, the Australian Labor Party didn't support the Iraq war. When Crean was replaced by Mark Latham, who's now the One Nation guy in New South Wales, the first thing one, Mark Latham did was a backroom deal with Howard to waive these terrorism laws through. That's the very first thing he did. And since then, Labor has capitulated every single time, which is why all these 75-plus laws have been passed um, and essentially just waved through each yep. time. They've been a one-party state in that regard. Yep. Um, now, we then had follow-up New Citizen newspapers, which is the paper we used to mass distribute in hundreds of thousands of copies across the country at that time physically. Um, in 2002, I'll put these up on the screen, in 2004 on these kind of fascist laws and what the alternatives were. Um, then by 2016, we'd issued, I'm talking, these are the major interventions yeah. here. I'll come back to some of the other more minor ones. The 28 pages, we, as I said, played a key role internationally in busting this open. Uh, and then we put out this pamphlet in June 2017 on the forces behind terrorism, uh, going into more detail on what we roughly went over earlier. Because that latter one coincided with the wave of terrorist attacks in the United Kingdom, yeah, which, which were I'm very revealing. about to go through, and this is coming to various coverage in our alert service journal, because, of course, you'd have the 7-7 uh, London subway bombing attack in 2005, which killed 52 people and wounded another 700. Um, we put out a media release uh, in 2016 on that topic, which went into the El Yamama story. Um, then you had the West... Westminster Bridge terror attack in March 2017 um, and we'll put up an image there because we singled out Prince Charles in this particular media release. He had established the Oxford Centre for Islamic Studies and he is very, very close to people, as I mentioned before, like Banda bin Sultan, but we also had a whole array of other of these Saudis that he was working with very closely. Then and you, you had, had people, sorry, you had people in Scotland Yard saying, we don't, we, we have our hands tied in terms of really investigating this kind of terrorism because the prince of the realm is good buddies with these known extremists from Saudi Arabia that are yep. backing all this. Yep. Then you had the Manchester terror attack and we put out uh, an article then. This was at the Ariana Grande concert that was uh, bombed at that time. All the assailants in these attacks, by the way, were known to MI5. We were on the radar. In the, case, in the case of Manchester, they were... They were Libyan al-Qaeda members, whatever the Libyan name was, Libyan Islamic Front, I think it was called, who had been under house arrest in Manchester, Theresa May gave them their freedom so they could go to Libya and fight 
on the Anglo-American side against Gaddafi, and then they came back and committed terrorist attacks at home. Yep, and then you had the June 2017, the London Bridge attack. We continued our exposés through this period, uh, asking you know questions like, was the terrorist ringleader an agent of MI5? Because that's how blatant it was. You had a stabbing in 2019, then on London Bridge again. Uh, and meanwhile, through the same period, terrorism was building in Australia. Um, you had the um, Sydney siege in December 2014. We began to turn the spotlight onto ASIO. One of the things, and ASIO as a branch of MI5, right? Because one of the things we noticed from the beginning, Lisa, is every... I can't, I can't think of one terrorist attack in the West in this period, right? The, sort of the ISIS period, if you will, mid, you know, uh, mid-20-teens onwards, where the terrorist wasn't known to the intelligence agencies, right? They were all known to the... So we thought, what does that mean, known yeah. to the intelligence agencies? In the case of ASIO, in the case of the Sydney siege, Man Monis, it came out in the New South Wales investigation. Man Monis had an ASIO file, and I fell off my chair reading this, it's in there in black and white, an ASIO file, hundreds of thousands of pages thick, Get that. What, what does hundreds of thousands of pages look like? That's a library thick. Mm. That's how big ASIO's file on the perpetrator of the Sydney siege attack was. And it was supposedly random and there was nothing you can do about it. No, there's a bigger story in Mumdu Habib, um, the former Guantanamo Bay detainee, had, we won't go through it now, but he had lots to say on that, which we reported as well. Yep, and so we continued following that story through 2017. By the middle of August 2017, Following a trip to the United Kingdom, um, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull had decided to um, set up this super ministry of home affairs, which of course the charge went to Peter Dutton on that. Modelled on the British Home Office. <laughs> That's right. Which, which, which is House, House MI5. The follow, early the following year, you had passage of the Espionage and Foreign Interference Bill, which again began to pivot to targeting countries like China. The state threat, threat of state terrorism, cyber terrorism and so forth was a big part of that. Um, that was passed in June. Uh, and then in August 2018, uh, there was another mark of a shift where the Five Eyes met in Sydney. These are the five intelligence agencies of the US, the UK, Australia, Canada and New Zealand. And um, Dutton's sidekick, Home Affairs Secretary Michael Pizzullo, um, he stated at that time openly that for decades these issues of international terrorism were seen as matters to be dealt with within jurisdiction, i.e. within each nation. He said this is no longer the view held by the Five Eyes partners and he called for the transformation of the state itself where states, nation states, should not be the key body fighting this stuff, but we needed a transnational model of security. What that means is you're, you're basically saying we're going we're going to accept, uh, we're going to limit our sovereignty and, and equip this body, the five eyes, representing the five countries, but then they can start to dictate to us, they'll, they will enforce terrorism matters. Now, later that year in September, a month later, the Telecommunications and Other Legislation Amendment Bill was passed. Um, we copied that legislation directly from the UK Snoopers Charter. So this yep. is where, you know, you've got to hand over your phone and give your password to a police if there's some terrorist incident or something, but it allowed already for the authorities to look into people's personal business on a major scale. Um, 
Then you had, uh, by the time of mid-2019, the raids against AFP and Nika Smethurst. This was the point at which we had 75 um, terror laws marked off by Professor Williams. At this point, Dutton had six more laws on the agenda. And again, they were all being passed through rapidly in quick succession. Um, by 2020, you had the Enhancement of Defence Force Response to Emergencies Bill relating to emergency management procedures. Now, at the same time, uh, you had, I think, New Zealand as a critical focal point as well because um, there were things in motion there that were betraying the way it was going to go here and globally. So we were putting out articles in 2019, Is New Zealand Already a Fascist Police State?, talking about the various economic reforms as well as anti-terror laws that were coming in. Straight after the Christchurch uh, massacre in March 2019, uh, Scott Morrison rushed through the Sharing of Abhorrent Violent Material Act 2019. Again, really rushed through very, very quickly. Uh, and then we wrote a major expose on the Christchurch massacre as British Imperial Population Control. Um, this explained the kind of gang counter gang operations that were being played upon, such as we saw in the United States across 2020, where you had this divis divisiveness within the population pitching left against right on the street, because it became quite apparent to us at that point in the dossier written by Brenton Tarrant or whoever actually wrote it, he actually literally said that he wanted to, and other people in his movement, the so-called accelerationist movement, wanted to precipitate a quote-unquote crucible of crisis to overthrow power structures, to overthrow governments, even explicitly calling for civil war in the United States. And we had a follow-up article, what is the third force fueling US unrest, exposing that accelerationist movement. And that is, of course, what you see building in various ways today. One way to think of what's happened in this period we've covered, Elisa, we actually went back 40 years to the beginning of the Afghanistan adventure. Um, but they, what we as Australian citizens, British citizens, American citizens, what we were prepared to tolerate our intelligence agencies, our forces doing in our name in other countries like Afghanistan and all these you know, schemes, right, where morality didn't matter, we stirred up head-chopping lunatic extremists against Russia just because it's Russia, right? And that's fine. But we were prepared to tolerate that. And post 9-11, those same agencies, that's what we have, that's the reason we've been exposing this, have turned that against us, mm -hmm. right? And we need to... I mean, we need to fight this. We need to um, uh, expose this. We need to change the system. We need to get honest people in government to open the book on all this, but we have to stop tolerating it being done in our name somewhere else. right? It's still going on in Syria. It's great that Joe Biden's pulled out of Libya, but America Afghanistan. has... Sorry, Afghanistan. But America has backed these head chopping... Is still doing it in Syria today. Mm. And you're being told a pack of lies about Assad in Syria today, right? So we have to stop doing it because this has been now turned against us. The, we're, we're supposedly the liberal democracies, as we call ourselves. No, no, we are, we are run by um, uh, a power-hungry, power financially-centred elite, which we call the financial oligarchy, that will do anything to hang on to power, 
And that's what we've experienced in the last 20 years. And I have to, I'm going to say one thing um, that'll be controversial in its own way, but you get to 2020 in a pandemic, which is real, a real pandemic. One of the, one of the consequences of this, there's no trust anymore in government. How can you trust anybody on anything they done. say? Yeah. Right? There is no, but, but do wake up. Your freedoms weren't taken away from you in 2020. They've been taken away from you aggressively for 20 years, except for 15 years they blame Muslims, and most of you were prepared to accept that. Right? No, no, this is systematic, and we, you know, we, on, we don't accept it on principle. We have to open up the whole book on all this. Yeah, we either continue with that creation of chaos, as we've just exemplified, or we work together with people, with nations we disagree with on some things, and we have a collaboration to solve common problems. And one of those, let, let's, let's name one of those things, Lisa. It's called the Belt and Road. China, which has successfully raised 800 plus million people out of extreme poverty, is a productive powerhouse, has a project to build infrastructure, not go to war, build infrastructure with the world. And we are being run by people who view this in imperial terms like the British did the Germans before World War I and said we will not tolerate Germany building railway lines across Asia so that that, that um, becomes a competitor to our supremacy over the seas. Britannia rules right? the waves. Britannia rules the waves. We will start a war to stop that. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is insane. And we cannot afford war now because it's a war with the great powers becomes a nuclear war, mm. right? Um, look at these things on their merits. It would be great if the whole world did start collaborating around the infrastructure that can raise living standards and in raising living standards, get rid of the conditions that breed extremism, right? And therefore where the terrorists come from and the world can actually move yeah, forward. No one wants to be a terrorist if they've got a good job and a great life, etc. They can't play upon people in that way. Yeah. So we've gone over time, but do contact us to um, get on board with the Australian Alert Service and begin to look at the historical processes behind where we are at this moment in history right now. Um, Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Robert. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe, and we'll see you again next week. Mm